0: Okay, turn with me to Matthew 11. We began two weeks ago when I was last here studying verses 25 to 30, which many Bible commentators refer to as Jesus' personal invitation. And uh, I'll review some and then we will continue and finish this up and probably move on a little bit into the next section today. Uh, you know, First 1 Timothy 1.15 says Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and that was his purpose. And he came to the earth to save them from God's wrath, his judgment from sin, from hell. And Jesus expressed his purpose for the incarnation when he said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Uh, that was his purpose, salvation. It's the message of Christianity, salvation through Jesus Christ. And that certainly expresses the heart of God. Isaiah 45, uh, 22 says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Isaiah 55, 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that your soul may live. Uh, Revelation 22:17, The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who's thirsty, Come. Let the one who re- wishes to receive the water of life without cost. So from the Old Testament all the way through to Revelation, God is in the business of inviting people to come for salvation. And we find that was the character of Jesus himself. Uh, John 6.35, he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. John 7.37-38, uh, he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If he believes in me, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost beings will flow rivers of living water. John 8:12. he says, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Chapter 11, he says, I'm the resurrection of the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Those are all beautiful invitations. Uh, I don't know that you're going to find a more beautiful one than the one that we're at here, though, in chapter 11. And here in this invitation, Jesus begins, as we saw before, with a prayer of praise to God for how he has sovereignly granted understanding of his truth to infants and to his son. So look at verse 25, 26. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. He knows that at this point, he knows that the nation has turned its back on him. He knows that it's willfully denying its Messiah, but he still offers a personal invitation to those who are bearing heavy burdens and seeking rest. And so he calls them to come to him for that rest. And it's as if he says, even if the whole nation turns their back on me, my arms are still extended to those who are weary and heavy laden. You can still come. Uh, you see, the early days of his pro- popularity had passed. Uh, and opposition has formed. And in the midst of it all, the Lord is still tenderly giving his invitation. Now, as he begins, though, notice how he starts. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Why does he do that? Because basic to any presentation of the gospel or any call to people to come to Christ is a recognition that all responses, negative and positive, are ultimately under the sovereign control of God. Uh, Salvation is a provision of the Lord of heaven and earth and not the result of man's wisdom, plans, purposes, or power. In other words, in any invitation to believe the gospel, There must be a recognition that God is the one who must be praised, because he is the one who is determinative as to what happens. So Jesus recognizes the sovereignty of God, and he's saying, Father, I praise you that everything is going according to your plan. Even though the majority of people are rejecting me, your plan is still working out, and he's not frustrated at all. And so with the affirmation that the father's in control, Jesus then lays out his specific cause for praise, which is that God has hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and has revealed them to infants. In other words, God has hidden these truths from those who, because of their self-righteousness, think they're wise and intelligent, and instead he's made them clear and understandable to those who are humble and dependent like infants. Don't misunderstand this to mean that smart people can't be saved. It's not intelligence, it's intellectual pride that shuts people out of the kingdom. Uh, Intelligence is a gift from God, but when it's perverted by pride, it becomes a barrier to God because trust is in the gift rather than the giver. So Jesus says, praise you God that you put down human wisdom and reasoning. He's saying these things regarding the kingdom are hidden from people who think that they can discover the truth with their intelligence alone. They're hidden from those who are dependent on their wisdom. They're hidden from people who imagine that truth can be known through the human mind. Uh, no amount of evidence is, understand this, no amount of evidence is sufficient to convince the confirmed unbeliever. And in Jesus' day, that was especially true of the scribes and Pharisees who closed their minds to the revelation of God in Christ because they thought they had already attained salvation by their human wisdom. Uh, Jesus' statement, as I said, doesn't mean that God's withheld the truth from smart people. It just means that every person who thinks he's so smart he doesn't need it is doomed. Uh, And if you think you're so smart you don't need the truth and you willfully reject it, eventually God will close your mind to it once and for all. Uh, So Jesus is referring to this Wisdom and intelligence that's corrupted and perverted by pride and he thanks the father that intellectual power is not necessary for salvation If you could get Saved by your intellect. It wouldn't be to the glory of God would it? Uh, It would be to your glory God's not Jesus is not condemning wisdom and intelligence If you're intelligent God made you that way rather he's condemning intellectual pride And he's also saying you don't have to be intelligent to get saved uh, so summing it up, uh, said it several times, Intelligence is not the issue, intellectual pride is the issue. And the people had rejected Jesus in the face of all the evidence that he was the Messiah because they were too proud, too self-seeking, too egotistical, too busy justifying themselves by their own self achievement. But who are the ones who get in? Well, he says, they're the dependent, the infants. An infant's dependent totally dependent on their parents, and they're the humble. They're not the proud. They're the humble, those who are humbly confessing their dependency on God. They're helpless, and they recognize it. They're empty, and they know it. They're nothing, and they are aware of it. They're deeply aware they have no resources in life, and they turn to Christ in utter dependency. You have to come to the point where you abandon all of your own resources. So, this comparison between the wise and the infants is not a comparison between smart people and dumb people. It's not a comparison between educated and uneducated people. It's a comparison between those who think that their own intellect can save themselves and those who know that they can't and are totally dependent on God's grace. It's a grace and works comparison. So, Jesus says, Show me the guy in the corner who knows that he has no resources, who begs for them, who weeps over his lack of resources, who's humble before a holy God, who hungers for a righteousness that he knows he doesn't have, and I'll show you someone who'll get in the kingdom. God has revealed those things of his kingdom to those kinds of people. And so the invitation begins with being an invitation to the humble and dependent people. And he concludes this opening prayer by saying, yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. In other words, Father, you're well pleased (coughs) with this gospel of grace for those who are humble and lowly because it brings glory to you. God loves to help the humble and the helpless because they know they're helpless. He's pleased when they come to him because that honors his, uh, his grace and gives him glory. Well, Jesus continues this prayer to the Father, and he turns from praising the Father for his sovereignty and salvation and he now praises the Father for his revelation of himself uh, in his Son. Notice verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. What he's saying here is, look, all truth is bound up in the Father and the Son, and the only people who know it are the people to whom the Son reveals it. The idea here is that no one can know anything about salvation unless God's Son reveals it to him. So there there has to be a sovereign revelation. And the first statement he makes here is simple. It says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, there's two things in that statement that indicate what that statement is meant to say. Number one, it's meant to say that Jesus is God. It's a statement of his deity. The gospel begins with the fact that Jesus is God and is said in two ways in that phrase. The first way is by the phrase, my father. Uh, It brings us an intimacy, a a new development in the uniqueness of Christ's relationship to God in so far as the gospel of Matthew is concerned. Uh, The second one is the statement, all things have been handed over to me. At some point in the pre-existent eternity, uh, the Father committed all authority, all sovereignty, all truth, and all power to the Son. Uh, Jesus summed it up in Matthew 28:18. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Everything pertaining to divine life was committed to Christ. Everything pertaining to the universe is under his sovereignty. He's saying, I have an intimate union with the Father. I possess all of the sovereignty which God possesses. So it's a statement of his deity. And he goes on to say, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Now, that's a very significant statement, (laughs) because if the Son is God, then no one can truly know the Son but the Father, because only God can know God, and vice versa. If the Son knows God the Father, then the Son must be God, because only God can know God. Uh, You say then what's it saying? It's saying that all of the knowledge of divine truth is bound up in the Trinity. No man with his limited finite, finite resources can ever perceive that knowledge. It's unavailable. So how do we get it? Notice the end of the verse 27. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, the only way we'll ever know is by a revelation by the Son. A revelation from God himself. So what Jesus is saying here is that spiritual infants who know nothing, understand nothing, have no resources, are the only ones who can truly perceive what only God can know of eternal truth locked up in the infinite mind of the Trinity. How so? Because God chooses to reveal it to them. So then salvation is founded on that combination of a humble heart and an infinite God revealing himself to that humble heart. God has to break into the blackness of our stupidity and can only do that in the heart that is humble and broken before him. So salvation is a meeting of a humble, dependent, open, helpless heart with a revelation given by a gracious, sovereign God. That's the basis. That's where we stopped two weeks ago. And so let's pick up now with his plea for his listeners to respond in verses 28 to 30. After beginning with a prayer of praise to God for how he sovereignly granted understanding of his truth to infants and his son, Jesus now presents his plea for his listeners to come to him, (coughs) and in it, he explains those, who those are, who he is inviting. Let's begin with his call to faith in him. Notice the very beginning of verse 28. (coughs) He says, come to me. Just as man's part in salvation is to come humbly, it is also to come in faith. Now, because we all have finite minds, we cannot fully comprehend that Divine grace and human faith are inseparable in salvation. God sovereignly provides salvation, which includes the fact that the person must commit himself to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So there's both the Father giving that person to the Son as well as that person coming to Christ that are included. Our salvation is not through a creed, a church, a ritual such as baptism, a pastor, a priest, or any other human means, but only through Jesus Christ who said, come to me. To come is to believe to the point of submitting to his Lordship. In John 6.35, I have it up here on the board, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now, the word comes and the word believes are parallel to one another, just as the words hunger and thirst are parallel to one another. And so... Coming to Christ, then, is the same thing as believing in him. And it results in no longer hungering and thirsting. Okay, so notice who Jesus invites to come. All who are weary and heavy laden. Who are they? The hurting people. The spiritually exhausted people. The people with burdens who want to get rid of those burdens. What kind of burdens? Burdens of trying to keep a bunch of religious laws that you're told will gain you favor with God. Burdens of sin that weigh you down. Those kinds of burdens. You see, the thing that brings people to Christ is the fact that they're working hard and bearing a terrible burden and they can't get relief. The word translated weary here is a verb which means to work to the point of complete exhaustion and fatigue and it's a present active participle in other words those of you who are in the process of totally wearing yourselves out with toil it refers to the weary search for the truth the weary search for relief from the crushing load of a sin-laden guilt-ridden conscience the crushing effort of trying to earn your own kind of salvation of pulling yourself up By your own bootstraps to reform yourself. It speaks to those who are frantically and tirelessly wearing themselves out trying to earn their own salvation and find some peace of mind. And then he adds the word heavy laden. That's a perfect passive participle, which means that at some point in time in the past, someone dumped a heavy load on you and you're still carrying it. It's not enough that you're working hard, but you're doing it with 200 pounds on your back. And people keep stacking more on top of that. I mean, it'd be like a guy running down the middle of the road, absolutely at the end of his strength, totally exhausted, sweating profusely, staggering in his steps, carrying 200 pounds of stuff on his back. And you pull up alongside him in your car and say, What are you doing? And he says, I'm trying to rest. That isn't rest. But the rabbis told them that if they would keep the minutia of the law, they would find rest. That's what they said. They actually used the word rest. All that vain, fruitless striving after contentment, joy, happiness, rest, and peace with God finally becomes such an intolerable burden that when you just can't take another step, Jesus says, come to me. Now that's repentance. When you're completely exhausted from all of your efforts to keep carrying that heavy burden of all those religious rules and laws that will supposedly bring you peace with God, you turn around 180 degrees and come to me, he says. That's what repentance means. Turn around, leave your sin behind, drop that load of your self-effort to keep all those rules and come to me. The Jewish rabbis just piled up burdens on their people. In Acts 15.10, Peter rebuked some of the Judaizers who were trying to add circumcision as a requirement for the Gentile salvation. And he said, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? In other words, None of us Jews have ever been able to keep all these laws, so why are you now trying to require the Gentiles to keep them? And in Matthew 23:4, Jesus had some strong words to say about the scribes and Pharisees. He says, and they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. And so he says, you who are trying to earn your own salvation, and you've had someone dump a load of rules on you, It just piles up the guilt and the sin and the lack of forgiveness and peace and contentment and joy has finally driven you to total exhaustion. Come to me and find rest. This is a call to repentance for the dissatisfied, the people who've not found the answer and they're tired of looking for it. They know they don't have the answer. They know they can't pull themselves into the kingdom through their own self-effort. They have failed. They've tried to do everything they're told and yet they know they haven't achieved it. They're overpowered and overburdened by sin, and they know they're lost. Jesus says, turn around, turn from the futile despair of self-effort to the provision of God's grace. That's a part of true salvation. A person who comes to the end of their resources to the desperate point of being willing to turn from self and from sin to God, and to that person the doors of the kingdom are opened. You see, an understanding that you are helpless to achieve righteousness on your own is a part of genuine salvation. You don't just run along carrying all of your load and grab Jesus and stick him up on top. That isn't it. You must repent, turn around, stop trying to earn your own salvation based on works righteousness, Drop that burden of sin and self-achievement and go in the opposite direction to Jesus. That's the message the early church preached. That's the apostolic message. In Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. In other words, turn around, turn from that, and then demonstrate your repentance by being baptized as an outward public demonstration of your faith in Christ. He preached again in Acts 3.19 had the same message. And there he says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. In Acts 8, Peter confronts Simon the magician who thought he could buy salvation with money. And Peter told him, therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray earnestly to the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. Again, it's the same message. Repent. Turn around. Turn away from your sin. That was the message of Paul in Acts 17 and the Sermon on the Areopagus. He says, God is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent. In Acts 20, as he met with the elders of the church in Ephesus, he reminded them what the focus of his ministry had been because he wanted them to carry on that same kind of ministry. And he told them that he did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. First Timothy 1.9, he told the Thessalonians he was thankful how they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. They turned around to follow the true God. In 2 Timothy 2.25, Paul tells Timothy that he was to correct those who were in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. And that's the way it goes. You see, repentance is bound up in salvation. And when Jesus blasted the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum back in verse 20, why why did he say he did it? It says... Because they did not what? Repent. What does it mean to turn from sin? It means to realize the crushing load and turn away. The humble heart will see the futility of self-effort. It will know the unbearable weight of sin, the oppressive burden and anxiety of self-effort, and it will finally cry out with a hunger and a thirst for God, and the sovereign revelation of God's grace is there to receive the one who turns from sin. And what does Jesus promise to the one who repents? He says, and I will give you rest. That word rest means to refresh or revive as from a long journey or toilsome labor. It's a key word in this passage. It appears here and again in verse 29. And in this context, it refers to salvation. Jesus is calling people to salvation. God's rest was a common Old Testament theme. Uh, God warned Israel, Uh, Psalm 95, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah, in the wilderness, when your fathers tried me. They tested me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said there are people who wander in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Then we come to the New Testament writer of Hebrews quotes that passage and then says, See to it, brothers, that there not be in any one of you an un- evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. You see, to intellectually acknowledge Christ's deity and lordship is a dangerous thing if it does not lead to true faith. Because it gives the person a false confidence of belonging to Christ. Just as those Israelites who rebelled against Moses were denied entrance into the promised land because of unbelief, so too those who wilfully refuse to trust Christ are denied entrance into God's kingdom, rest of salvation, for the same reason. Hebrews 3:19 through chapter 4 verse 3 says, "So we see that they are not able to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains for entering His rest." Any one of you should have seemed to have fallen short of it, for indeed we have had good news proclaimed to us, just as they also, but the word that was heard did not profit those who were not united with faith among those who heard, for we who have believed enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now the dictionary gives us several definitions of rest that parallel the spiritual rest that God offers those who trust in Christ. First of all, the dictionary defines rest as cessation from action, motion, labor, or exertion. And in a similar way, to enter God's rest is to cease from all efforts of self-effort to try to earn salvation. Secondly, rest is defined as freedom from that which wearies or disturbs. And again, we see the spiritual parallel of God giving his children freedom from the cares that weary them, from the burdens that weigh them down and rob them of peace and joy. And third, rest is defined as something upon which we can lean for support. Uh, So, too, God is our provider who gives us all that we need to support us in difficult times and situations. He's the one upon whom we can lean, even when there's no one else. So when we receive Christ's offer of salvation, we're receiving an invitation to eternal rest not in the sense that we don't have to serve him, but that we no longer have to be burdened by a load of sin or religious works that we, don't have to, that we do in order to try to achieve righteousness. We're free from all those kind of burdens. So then this is an invitation to salvation, an invitation to salvation rest, which includes both immediate, present tense salvation, as well as its kingdom rest and its heavenly rest fulfillment. But there's a crucial step in this invitation and it can be summed up by the word submission notice what jesus says in verses 29 and 30. take my yoke upon you and learn from me for i am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light at the beginning of verse 29 jesus says take my yoke upon you what does that mean That means there is a submission involved in salvation. There is a responsibility to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and that is part and parcel of his invitation here. Salvation is taking on a yoke. There is responsibility involved. The term yoke was commonly used in the ancient world to refer to entering into submission to someone or something. That's why Peter used it in Acts, as I read earlier, about the yoke that the Pharisees had put on people that they couldn't bear. The yoke is that which causes submission. And what Jesus is saying is that if you've come to him, you must come with a submissive heart. You must come to take on the yoke. See, a yoke is a wooden device made to fit over the shoulders and around the neck usually of two oxen, sometimes there, there are yokes for one oxen, one ox, but most of the time it's for two oxen, in order to control them so that they work together while they plow a field or pull a cart or wagon. They were custom-made, designed specifically for the animals on which they were to be used. They had to be because while the oxen had to be about the same size and strength in order for the yoke to work correctly, The farmer might want the animals to be closer together or further apart while plowing. So the width of the yoke would determine that. So the farmer would take the oxen to the carpenter who would measure them for the yoke and then custom design the yoke to fit that team of oxen. And because Jesus was a carpenter, it's very likely he made yokes in his carpenter shop in Nazareth. And so he knew a lot about yokes. After the oxen were measured, the carpenter would carefully mark out the wood and then cut it and carve it. And when he was done with it, the oxen would be brought back in for a final fitting because it was important for the yoke to fit perfectly so it didn't chafe and harm the animals. And the purpose of the yoke was to hold the oxen in place so they would plow in the direction they were supposed to or pull the wagon in the direction they were driven. They controlled their movement and forced them to submit to their master. And thus, that principle transferred over into Jewish thinking, so that a student who submitted himself to a rabbi for learning was said to be taking on the yoke of his teacher. In fact, in the Apocrypha, (coughs) the book of Sirach records this statement, put your neck under the yoke and let your soul receive instruction. Uh, If you study the writings of various Jewish philosophers and rabbis, you find that they talk about the yoke of the Torah and the yoke of the law and the yoke of the commandments. So the Jews saw a yoke as typifying submission to instruction. And that's what Jesus is asking them to do. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. Submit to my instruction, my direction for your life. And then he adds this phrase, and learn from me. It's a yoke of submission to His Lordship, His authority, His teaching, His instruction. It's a yoke that implies obedience. And I believe true salvation occurs when you turn from sin to Christ with a willingness to have Him take control of your life. Therefore, I don't believe that you can simply take Jesus as your Savior but not as your Lord. That that word learn there is a verb from which the noun is derived that we translate as disciple. Jesus is saying, Come be one of my disciples. Be one of my learners. That involves acknowledging his Lordship, being committed to those good works that we're created for in Ephesians 2:10. You say, but isn't salvation all of grace? Of course it's all of grace, it's all of God's mercy but in order for you to truly respond to his grace, there has to be a brokenness and humility in your heart, which causes you to turn from your own life to Christ. And the legitimacy of your turning is indicated by your willingness to submit and obey. So what is it like to be under the yoke of Christ? Well, all I can say from a physical perspective, if I was a farmer in the Nazareth area in the time of Jesus and I needed a yoke made for my oxen, I think I'd want to go to the carpenter shop where Jesus made the yokes. Because I imagine he made the best ones. After all, he was God in flesh. He possessed all the creative abilities of God. And I'm sure his yokes were incredibly well made. And that's true in the spiritual dimension as well. He says his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Why? Because he's meek and lowly. Unlike the scribes and Pharisees, He doesn't desire to oppress us. He doesn't desire to pile burdens on us that we can't bear. He's not interested in trying to show how tough it is to follow Him. He's gentle, He's tender, and He gives us a yoke we can carry. It's easy and it's light. The yoke of obedience and submission to Christ is not grievous. It's joyous. It's the greatest liberation in the believer's life. Because if you obey Him... When you obey Him, the Christian walk becomes a joy and a blessing. It's when you disobey that the yoke chafes your neck. But in obedience and submission to the Lordship of Christ, there's ease and lightness. 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. That tells me that He won't give us anything that we can't carry. But the yoke of the law... The yoke of human effort, the yoke of works, the yoke of sin is a heavy, chafing, gouging yoke. It's a large, unbearable burden carried in the flesh that will lead you to despair, frustration, and anxiety. But Jesus offers you a yoke you can carry because he gives you the strength. So instead of the heavy burden of pride and self, believers have the lightness of humility and lowliness. Instead of continually loading ourselves down with the burden of trying to earn our own righteousness, to the point we can't even carry the load, we release all to Christ, and obedience to him becomes easy and light. And so we do full circle back to humility. What have we learned? We've learned that a humble heart, broken over the weight of sin, is touched by the sovereign grace of God as he reveals Christ to us. That individual repents of sin, turns in faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and his faith is shown to be genuine because he willingly submits his life in obedience to the Lord's, to, to Christ's Lordship. And the result is that Jesus gives us rest. Submission to Jesus Christ brings the greatest liberation anyone can experience. In fact, it's the only true liberation we can experience because only through Christ are we free to become what God created us to be. You know, when Jesus made that statement that day, some of the rabbis and scribes who heard him must have been reminded of Jeremiah 6.16. Listen to this. Thus says Yahweh, Stand by the ways and, and see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. That's what was taking place right there. Yahweh in human flesh, Jesus Christ, says, walk in my way, and you'll find rest for your souls. And they're saying, we will not walk in it. And so as we proceed into chapter 12, you'll see that the hatred of Jesus Christ grows and becomes a final commitment. Any questions or comments before we move into chapter 12? Yes? Jesus has warned us already about The people hate him, they're going to hate you. That runs counter to the, uh, you know, my yoke is easy. It, that is beca- I'm assuming that's because his yoke is easy. It's the yoke that the world's going to place upon you. It's the result of your belief. Right. His yoke, what he requires is easy. His burden's light. That doesn't stop the world. They hated him. They hate us. It doesn't stop them. Yes. Was your reference to the Apocrypha of the Old Testament? Sirach, yeah, in the Apocrypha. The Old Testament Apocrypha. Testament. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. right. Okay, yes? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling versus the symbol of the yoke mm-hmm. and rest. Just that that. Working out your own salvation. Yeah, that's what... We are called, what seems like a paradox to us, we're called to, to work out our salvation, meaning obey, do, follow his law, his, what he instructs us to do, be obedient to, to him, but we're going to find in obeying him that it's easy and not burdensome, but it doesn't mean we don't work at it. And that's hard sometimes. So, Barry. Uh, just repeating. So yoke uh, really explains uh, kind of clears up lordship. Uh, yeah. Yes. Well. Right. You're taking his yoke. You're submitting to his lordship. Yeah. Well, look at chapter 12. Let's read the first 14 verses. And then we will get started. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not wrongful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread? which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Behold, a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, What man is there among you who has a sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and it was restored to normal like the other. But going out, the Pharisees took counsel together against him as to how they might destroy him. The events recorded here in Matthew 12 bring us the full manifestation of the hatred and opposition by the leaders of Israel against Jesus. This this chapter is in many ways a milestone chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. This chapter is a turning point. In verses 1 to 21, we see this mounting, growing unbelief of Israel, crystallizing into conscious rejection of Jesus. And then in verses 22 to 50, you have the blasphemy that follows their rejection. And although it'll be a few weeks before we get there, when you come to to chapter 13, Jesus begins to speak of an assembly of saints beyond the nation of Israel. He turns away from them to another people. And so this is a climatic chapter in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, The king has been presented. The king has been rejected. And so in chapter 13, there's this turning to something new apart from the nation of Israel. The kingdom will press on without him, and that becomes the theme of chapter 13. But for now, we're looking at chapter 12, and we're going to see the rejection of Christ and the blasphemy of Christ. Now as we've moved through the Gospel of Matthew, I think it's been apparent to all of us that this has been a growing thing. We knew all the way back at the very beginning when Jesus was born and Herod tried to destroy him that he would not be accepted. Uh, We saw in chapter 3 when his forerunner, John the Baptist, confronted the Pharisees and the Sadducees and called them a generation of vipers and warned them to flee from the wrath to come. We saw in chapter 5, verse 20, when the Lord confronted them and says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he proceeds in chapters 5, 6, and the first part of 7, to destroy their confidence in their religion. He attacked them, and in turn, they attacked him. And finally, in chapter 9, we begin to see the movement. They accused him of blasphemy in verse 3. In verse 11, they accused him of spending his time with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 34, they said he was demon possessed, and the more directly Jesus confronted the Jewish leaders with their internal sinfulness and their external emptiness, the more they hardened their antagonism toward him. Criticism and indifference grew into sharp rebuke and then furious rage. In fact, if you look down at verse 14 for a moment, uh, you see that they began to plot his murder. Uh, It says, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. So this is a milestone chapter. The the storm that ultimately leads to Calvary's cross is gathering on the horizon. Now this chapter begins by recording how their opposition to Jesus crystallized around the issue of the observance of the Sabbath. Uh, Notice the beginning of verse 1. At that time... Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. So this is a Sabbath day issue. Uh, the crystallization of their rejection of Jesus occurred because he violated their rabbinic traditions for the keeping of the Sabbath. To them, the Sabbath was the absolute epitome of their legalistic system. Everything in their legalistic system ultimately focused on on that one day and when he violated their traditions on the Sabbath he was striking a blow at the heart of their system and that becomes the final straw that breaks the camel's back as it were. Now the word Sabbath is a very simple word. In Greek it's sabbaton, uh, in Hebrew it's Shabbat. Um, it means a cessation from labor, a period of rest, a stopping of something. And their Sabbath, then, was the day they stopped doing what they did on the other days. You'll remember when God created the world, it says he rested on the seventh day. And he ordained that that day would be a day of ceasing labor for Israel. In Exodus 16, the Jews started practicing the Sabbath while they were in the wilderness. God sent the manna every morning except on the seventh day. And in Exodus 16, Verses 23 to 26, we're told, and he, Moses, said to them, this is what Yahweh has spoken. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to Yahweh. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is in excess put aside to be kept until morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had commanded, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. And Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to Yahweh, tomorrow you will not Find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. So they started the practice then. And in Exodus 20, verse 8, when God gave the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment was, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So then it became a special covenantal sign between God and Israel. Now listen carefully, because many people misunderstand this. This fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is a non-moral commandment. It is the only one that is a ceremonial one. It's the one of the Ten Commandments that was uniquely between God and Israel as a ceremonial rule. All of the other nine are moral absolutes. And the reason we know this with certainty is that when you come to the New Testament, every other commandment is repeated in the New Testament except the one regarding the Sabbath. It was not repeated in the New Testament because it was a unique covenantal sign, much like circumcision was between God and Israel. And as believers who were under the New Covenant were told in Colossians 2:16 and 17, <coughs> therefore... No one is to judge you in food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which were only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And in Galatians 4, 9-11, Paul chastised the Galatians for turning back to the old habits of practicing the observance of special days, and months and years, seasons and years because they were simply enslaving them to the ceremonial law from which Christ had freed them and that would have included the keeping of the Sabbath in accordance with the Jewish ceremonial law. But at the time of Jesus and the disciples, the Sabbath was in fact the ceremonial law of God. It was not a binding law for the church, it was for Israel. And so Jesus would honor the Sabbath as would his disciples. but only so far as God intended it to be honored. When Jesus came, do you remember what he said back in chapter 5, verse 17? Do not think I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill. So being that he was God, the Sabbath was his own decree, and he would fulfill it as he intended to do, uh, intended it to be fulfilled. Now, I'm looking at my notes and realizing, and also the time, and knowing that uh, there's no way we will even get partway into what I've got <laughs> here. So let me uh, let me just make a note where I left off. Any comments or questions? I'll say more about that as we continue on, but. Uh, Yes.
1: I had Galatians
0: four, nine to eleven. Eleven, thank okay. you. And the other's Colossians two, sixteen and seventeen. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Some Christian churches actually still hold to the Sabbath. Right. right. I'm going to talk more about that next week. Okay. <laughs> I got so much stuff here <laughs> and so little time now. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, you can uh, run afoul of some people. In fact, um, you've got the uh, Seventh Day Adventist denomination, uh, but they are—they're really cultic because they don't. It's not just the Sabbath for them. They also require you to keep all the Old Testament feasts and all the rest. It's Galatians talks about it's a different gospel. It's a different gospel. You're adding works to grace, and therefore, um, they're in a sense like the Judaizers of the biblical times. So, okay. Anything else? Yes. What was that? the in Exodus when they started? The yes. Exodus. Three? Exodus uh, <laughs> 16 was where the, about the, the uh, Exodus 16 was when uh, he told them uh, they started practicing the Sabbath when they were in the wilderness. It was Exodus 16. They well the yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, they could collect twice as much on mm-hmm. the sixth day, and then uh, uh, they had to because it, it wouldn't keep, mm-hmm. except that was the only time it would keep. So for 2 days otherwise it it rotted after 1 day so Okay anything else All right let's close with prayer